The following is a message of First Baptist Richardson. For more information, please visit fbcr.org. Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Acts chapter 17. I want to thank each and every one of you for being here in our celebration service. And I also want to welcome all of you who are joining us on video in our Worship East service. Thank you so much for being here. It is a little warmer, so it wasn't quite as miserable for you to get out. Nonetheless, we know it took effort to get here, and we appreciate it. If you have been with us, we've been going through the Well Bible Study together, which is five chapters a week where we talk about these different things we're reading, most of them in the Old Testament and then in a few in the New Testament, and we have been going through the book of Acts And on Sunday mornings, we've been discussing the book of Acts, and many of you have shared with me how you have found other things. I'm an odd duck, so I really don't expect anyone to be finding things the way that I see them, so don't feel weird about that. But we've been having these discussions, it's been great for me to get to share with you on Sunday mornings and hear back from you. Today, you've already gotten the context of the verse that we're going to be reading. We just heard that story. Paul, all alone in Athens. Silas and Timothy will join as soon as they can. Paul's in this storied city, an epicenter for science and philosophy and religion. If I were to ask you to name a famous person who lived in New York City, you could probably do it. L.A. may be even a little easier. If I asked you even now to name someone who was world-renowned who lived in Athens, you certainly could. The list of people who lived there previously included people such as Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Epicurus, and Zeno. That last one was the founder of Stoicism. And in this city, Paul would encounter those who were Epicureans, those who believed that the point of life was to get as much joy and happiness as you can right now. If there is a God or some God out there, they don't really care about us. They created things and wandered off. So just get all the joy you can because tomorrow we may die. That's pretty much Epicureanism in a nutshell. Stoicism, a little different. Live in harmony with nature. Be as rational as you can, as self-sufficient as you can. There are gods out there. and There's just God that's the world's soul. That stuff's out there. But do your very best to just be logical and rational and and self-sufficient as best you can in life. That's what it's about. And so Paul is in a waiting area, stuck, until he can get someplace else that he's planning on going. Another change of plans, if you were here last week. He's distressed to see all of this idolatry. He's paying attention to what's going on around him. He's walking around the waiting area he's at, and he notices there's a lot of idolatry, and he's distressed, but his response is to engage the situation. He starts debating with his fellow Jews and with Greeks who have become Jews, the devout persons who are following along, who are in that particular process. He's debating with them and challenging their ideas and mentioning Jesus. And some call him a babbler, but others think, no, he's someone advocating a foreign pantheon of gods. The word babbler here in Greek is a word that comes from that thing where birds go out and find grains on the ground and pick up one of them and take it away. Or like a scrap peddler who goes and finds other things that weren't their own and sells them off. The idea is that Paul is either a person who goes and picks up other people's ideas and trades them off as his own. Or he must be somebody who's advocating for a whole other pantheon of gods. 
in the Greek system, the gods came in twos, male and female. You'll notice in your Bible, there's a strange thing where it says they thought he was preaching foreign gods, plural. And the, it makes a little note that he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Resurrection is anastasis in Greek. And the Greeks thought he was preaching about Jesus and some female god called Anastasia. Who is Anastasia? They couldn't possibly think he was actually speaking about resurrection. And so they drag him up to the Areopagus. The Areopagus is a court, a council. To this day, the Greek government has an Areopagus. It's their supreme court. At this time, it was no longer the ruling body it had been before the Romans piled in, but they were responsible for all of the education and the religion that was allowed in Athens. And it was their job to adjudicate on those matters. And they met on Mars Hill, or Ares Hill, as it was actually called by them. And Paul's dragged before them as a bit of a jest, perhaps, or a slander. This guy's a a goofball. Let's bring him up here and let's humiliate him. But the men on the council take their jobs seriously, and they sincerely ask Paul to explain. We want to understand. Paul can't refuse. Someone asked him to explain his faith to them. It's not a matter of he wants to do it or not. He has to give a response. He has put himself in a situation that has now caused a set of circumstances where he is now in front of the ruling body that perhaps is almost as famous as any other in the world. And standing there, they say, tell us about your faith. And the man has to say something. And the result is going to be clear. Either he'll be free to preach based on what he says, or he must be silent in Athens because he will not be permitted to educate about his religion anymore. Paul's in an unexpected city, unexpectedly alone, being asked to explain his faith to an unexpected audience. Listen to what he says. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 22. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it. He who is Lord of heaven and earth does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth. And he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope and find him, though indeed he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art of the imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, he now commands people everywhere to repent. 
because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given us assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed, but others said, we will hear you again about this. At that point, Paul left them, but some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysius the Arapagite and a woman named Demarius and others with them. Paul starts his sermon off talking about what he has seen and what he has heard. Paul's been paying attention. God likes people who pay attention. There's a guy named Moses in the Old Testament. He's a pretty big deal. And Moses isn't really that big of a deal until he has this experience at the burning bush. I don't know if any of you have ever spent time in the desert, but a dry bush being on fire is not unique. It's not exceptional in any way. It was not something that you would see only once. The miracle of this situation was not that there was a voice coming out of it because that doesn't happen until he comes and inquires further. No, the miracle about the burning bush is that it is not being consumed. How long do you have to pay attention to a bush before you figure out it's not being consumed? How many people walked by that bush? How many people saw a burning bush and went on with their day? God likes people who pay attention. And Paul is paying attention. Paul notices what goes on and he says, I see how you are religious in every way. Paul had walked into the city to learn about it, and he hadn't agreed with everything he saw. He was troubled by the idolatry, but these people cared about humankind. They cared about what our role was. They cared about God or God trying to understand the divine. They cared about our place in the world, about the world itself. Paul could relate to that passion, to that curiosity, to those questions. I saw your altar to the unknown God. And Paul says, I come from the God that you don't know. I've come from him. He is speaking about how his belief system fits into the questions that they're asking. He explains that something they've been looking for is what he found. Paul begins to speak to them about the nature of God. This is something they're very interested in. You don't have to read Greek philosophy very far to figure out that they wanted to know how the things work. What are we? Who is he? These are things they care about, the nature of things. So Paul starts talking to them about the nature of things. God is active in the world and created it. So much more than this deistic idea that the Epicureans would spout. God is not one who created and walked away. No, God is still active in the world today. Thomas Jefferson would not agree with this idea. There are those through history that wouldn't agree with this idea. The biblical Paul says this is the idea. God, yes, created everything, but is still in and active this world today. Paul says that God isn't served by humans. He doesn't need us. You want the existence of God? You want to know what he is? He is not contingent. He doesn't need us. He simply is, and he is here with us. Paul talks about he and the Athenians actually being in the same people group, humanity. 
If you're going to have a conversation with someone, it's pretty wise to find the common ground. Paul brings it all back to the very basics. There are no nations, classes, genders that matter. In the whole world, doesn't matter at all. We are simply humans, and we all come from one. He says, God gives humans, all of us, you and me, life and breath and the things we have. All mortals started from one, and we are from him. Paul puts himself on the same side as them. There is no division. So we have an unknown God who's been out there, and we are all his people, the people he created. So the question becomes, that's never stated, why hasn't he revealed himself? And Paul answered it, he has. He explains how God has been continually revealing himself. Humans, all of us, have been groping and searching for God. And he has been found many times to be not far from us. Your own philosophers, Paul points out, have said these things. In him we live and move and have our being. He's quoting their philosophers, which he had, before he ever came here, read. It didn't matter that he didn't agree with where they landed. It mattered that he needed to understand the questions they were asking. And he does. In your poets, he says, have said, for we too are his offspring. We are his offspring. That's how you know he's not made of gold and silver and stone. We are his offspring. Our breath, our spirit, our pneuma is from him. God gives it to us. And so having had this conversation, having revealed himself, God has called us now all to repent, Paul says. Paul throws himself in this category, not you to repent. Paul has, says that God has called us, all humans, that we're all in the same category, needing to repent. Paul in other places will call himself the chief of sinners. Paul is not looking at people that he thinks are any worse than him in any way anything, Paul knows that grace and mercy is available for them because it was available for the terrorists struck blind on the road of Damascus. You and me, he says, all of us have this in common. We have to change our ways. This kingdom, this nation, this empire isn't the one God is looking for. He commands we live a different way. Judgment is coming for those who don't. The man who will judge us is also the one God raised from the dead. It's not a bad sermon off your cuff. Extemporaneous speaking is not easy. Being asked a question and called out on the carpet is not easy. I don't care how much you practiced. It's a challenge. He does a pretty good job with it, but what's the response? Well, some people immediately scoff at the resurrection. Wait, you weren't talking about a female god, Anastasia? That we could have gotten behind. You were actually talking about someone who died and rose again? That's crazy. But some had a more polite response. We're very interested in what you have to say, and we want to hear about it again sometime. Notice they don't set a date. Some of you have asked a girl out and had them go, I'd love to do that sometime. We'll get together about it. And they never set a date. It's a really nice way to get shot down. In this set of circumstances, Paul isn't given a verdict. The judgment about whether or not Christian thought can be preached is tabled. And Paul probably 
legally can't preach anymore until the issue is decided in Athens. But a few people follow Jesus from this conversation. We have a woman named Demarius who became a follower, and then some members of the Areopagus, including Dionysius. Judgment council people here at supposedly the smartest group in the world, some of them become followers of Jesus because of this conversation. But there's no great harvest, no thousands coming, and there's no more work for Paul to do. He can't stay and preach anymore. A seed is planted, and Paul leaves Athens and goes to Corinth. He has no more work to do where he is. Paul had to pull a response to his faith out of his pocket. He was asked a question. He did pretty well, and we could do that thing where people just attribute that to God. God moved in Paul and that, and that's true, but it's probably oversimplistic. God hasn't chosen to share his message of salvation without using humans. The Great Commission and the Acts 1-8 mission make this very clear. They will hear if we go tell them. How can they hear if no one is sent? God has chosen to use humans. God chose to use humans, one human, in the whole process of salvation. Humans, the image of God in the world, is the only place he's allowed his image. If you think that we aren't a part of the plan, you are missing the point of the story. We are integral to the whole thing. And Paul's asked a question, and he does a job. And so let's take seriously the work that he does there. He's able to respond. He does such a good job because he first listened. He saw. He paid attention. He studied their philosophers and their poets. Just because he didn't agree with the end product didn't mean he couldn't listen for common ground. It didn't mean he couldn't see the heart-seeking God behind those who kept arguing about him. Paul saw men and women of Athens who could conceive that they didn't have it all figured out who would build an altar to a God they may have missed, who would every day listen to new ideas, things they hadn't conceived, because as smart as everyone thought they were, they were still willing to listen. I have, over the course of my educational career, have to learn a lot of languages. That was not a choice. Uh, somewhere in this church is Dr. Stephen von Weyrich, who taught me Hebrew for two years. Uh, Hebrew lacks tense. It doesn't have a past, present, or future. It was two years of trying to wrap my mind around how you talk to somebody when you don't have tense. I never learned to speak it conversationally because it, it would be just really challenging to try and get my head around how you talk to someone when you don't have tense. I learned Spanish in high school and picked it up a couple other places as well, learned French a little bit other places, but I don't really speak most of them. The only one that I actually speak at all, if we could call it that, is Spanish. And I speak a little bit of Spanish, but I find that it's nice to learn a couple words in, in a bunch of different languages, especially if you're going to travel someplace. It's nice to be able to say good morning, hello, thank you. It's kind to care about the person in front of you and try to, to speak to them in their native language. Spanish, 
it was one of those things you had to do at Crawford High School, so you did. And it's, it's pretty useful. It would be better to be good at it. I've got this one phrase. Me gustaría hablar más español, pero necesito practicar más. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? What it actually means is, I would like to speak Spanish more, or speak more Spanish, but I need to practice more. When I say that to someone that I'm speaking Spanish with, I'm trying to convey the idea that I do speak a little Spanish, but, and I'm interested in the conversation, but I'm, I'm being honest about my limitations. But because I can say that sentence well, people immediately start spouting off Spanish right back at me. We had a miscommunication there. I was trying to confess that I don't really understand this. See, it's one thing for me to put the words together and say something. For me to memorize a line and just throw it out there and see what happens with it, that's an easy thing to do. People can do that very easily. What's very difficult is to have the conversation. See, when they speak, all of a sudden I have the challenge because when I speak, I get to choose where the breaks are with the words. When they speak, I don't get to make that choice. And I have to be listening for the context of the conversation so I understand what sounds might be what words. And for those of you who are not English speakers, you know exactly what I'm talking about because we don't talk like this. You are continually trying to determine with a fast-paced speaker exactly what words he is saying. Where did that word end and the other one begin? And it is a challenge, and it involves far more listening before you speak than we'd like to admit. The world could use more Christians who listen well before they speak. So they can understand the words that are being said around them, the actions, and what they really mean. To speak about your faith, you need to be able to listen for the heart of the person, to hear what's forming the words in their life. I try to listen to those that I don't necessarily agree with. And I often find that deep down, many of the things we hope for and we aspire to are actually the same. I may not like where they've landed, but often if I walk down the path of their thoughts, I can find that point where we diverged. And if I'll listen and walk just a little further... I often find common ground in many things that we were looking for before we got to that point. Many things we cared about, desired, hoped, aspired for. In law school, I had the opportunity to have conversations with people on a pretty regular basis about my faith because how often does the dean of the law school start the very first day of law school going, all of you have done these many different things. Here's we've got Olympic athletes and all this stuff. Oh yeah, one of you was a Baptist preacher and everyone turns to the oldest guy in the room. (laughs) In law school, they divide you up into sections and your first year of law school, you do all of your classes with your section. There were about 80 of us in a section, and we go from class to class together. And one day in there, and I may have told this story before, I was in a particular class, and the professor, knowing me and knowing the class, and had a little fun with a story he had to tell anyway. He was talking about a Supreme Court case where the Supreme Court, instead of making their decision based on the law, made their decision based on the natural law. 
In other words, there was no law on the books anywhere. And so the Supreme Court made a decision based on natural law, based on we know there's a right and wrong, and this is wrong, and we're not going to do that. And as a general rule, I don't advocate for that particular stance because we could have really different ideas about what right or wrong in there. But the professor, wanting to poke the class because we're all very tired at whatever time of morning it was, decided he'd get a conversation going by asking this question instead. Not, did you agree with the idea that the Supreme Court would choose natural law? He said, do you believe that there's such a thing as absolute truth? A class full of people resoundingly, hand after hand, said no, and here's why, and no, and here's why, and no, and here's why. The professor used to be a philosophy professor, and he knew what I did, and he was really just smiling, grinning like the Cheshire cat in the front. He said, Mr. Musser? (laughs) Yes, Professor Martinez, there is absolute truth. To my classmates who believe there is not absolute truth, I ask, is that absolutely true? But more importantly than that, I know how passionate you are about preventing all kinds of injustice, how you see things that are done wrong and people skate by because they can find a way where it's legal and how that outrages you and you believe the system should change. And more than that, who in this room thinks that slavery wasn't wrong before it was illegal? The Constitution of the United States was set up to be discriminatory to African Americans. It was wrong before it was illegal. And we all know that. We may disagree about what absolute truth is, but we agree that there are simply some things that are absolutely true, timeless. It doesn't matter what your geography is on this planet. They are what they are, and they are not going to change. I had many good conversations with these people, but what we were talking about is what we had in common. I believe that God created human beings in his image, and no one gets to put them in bondage or demean them. That is wrong. I can go from scripture to scripture, and there were many who are fascinated by the fact that that is what our faith teaches us. Why don't they know that? What message are we really preaching if we're not sharing the idea that we actually agree on so many things? Find the divergent point on the road and find the common ground before it and help them hear the story of Jesus that changes everything. I bet they're not in as much disagreement as you think they are. Paul was unexpectedly alone in an unexpected place, forced into an unexpected situation in front of an unexpected audience. The stakes were high. Paul had one shot, and it was better because he listened. Many people consider this to be a complete failure by Paul. I am not among them. This is the first time that Christianity has to go up toe-to-toe and eye-to-eye with the great religions and philosophies of that day. Not one person is arguing that he is wrong. They don't have something to put back in his faith. The conversation is not over. It is delayed for a time, but I'm telling you right now, there are churches in Athens, Greece, that would tell you this story didn't end. 
Today in this place, you have been challenged this month earlier by me to share your faith with two people this year. You better be listening first for what's going on in this world. You better be studying the things that are put out there by people that you don't agree with because this world requires human beings with ears before it requires human beings with mouths. We require people who have hearts that actually care for the lost instead of seeing them as an enemy. I don't care what side of the political aisle someone's on. They're not your enemy. They're your mission. You do not get to decide who gets to hear the gospel or not. You just get to have an answer for your faith. So go out there this year with hearts wide open, ears and eyes wide open, listening for those people who would say they don't agree with you and find, in fact, that they are crying out for the same God who sent you to them. Let's pray. God, in this place today, we pray that you would move in us because in you we live and move and find our being. We pray that God, that men and women in this place would be empowered to use your words, to share their faith, to share your hope with a lost world, not because they're lost, but because we all are without you. May we all put ourselves in this human situation of brokenness and suffering and realize that that's where we all agree where we are. Whether you call it entropy or Genesis 3's brokenness, it doesn't matter because we are your people and we have fallen and this place is broken and yet you came and changed the rules and may we be the people who talk about that everywhere we go because it's just who we are. Give us power and strength today to be those people, God, we ask this in your name. Amen.